Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me this week is Mark Meredith. Mark and I have been sending tweets back and forth for 10 years, 9, 8, something like that. It's been a while. Uh, back when uh, I was starting up my blog, and he has been running DiceMonkey.net for... Uh, about that same amount of time, you've been uh, putting out a lot of uh, role-playing games, supplements, and sort of your own articles out there, some products that are certainly uh, up for sale. And I'm excited to talk with you here today because we've been uh, enjoying each other's shared interest in 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, and he's been playing that, collecting books and posting about it and kind of sharing his insights and thoughts about getting back into that system Plus, I always yeah. enjoy all the Lord of the Rings memes that he keeps me up to date on, which is a fun thing. Uh, so, yes, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a while. We've been, you know, conversing back and forth about D&D and any number of topics for years. So it's great to finally be able to chat with you. Yeah, it's. Uh, I started Dice Monkey back um, just as fourth edition was coming out. So it's been like, I think like 12 years now. So it's around 2008 or so. Yeah. Yeah. About that. Okay. I guess what is your history with, with D and D was fourth edition, your first edition, or was that where you into the game much before then? Um, I got in when in third edition, um, my first role-playing game was the West End game Star Wars. Um, I started learning that with a friend, and he also taught me the Usagi Ojimbo role-playing game. Okay. And then right when the D20 Star Wars was coming out, I picked that up. Um, this was, you know, 2000, 2001, I think. Um, and set up a group and we played for a few years and we had one friend try to introduce us to D and D, but he had only played second edition. So then he was trying to teach us Thacko and <laughs> good luck. We were, like, we're not playing this. We thought that people who played D and D were losers. We were the cool kids playing star Wars. And, uh, so then after that group broke up, then, uh, then I ended up picking up the player's handbook and realizing it was, it was essentially the exact same game as, D20 Star Wars. Um, and I can't recall whether or not I had picked up like the 3.0 player's handbook or the 3.5. Um, but it was, it was a right around the time of 3.5. Um, and then, uh, ended up playing that for, for quite a bit, even played a bit, um, when I was on deployment, um, you know, in the Arabian Gulf. So, um, pretty much played for basically the entire run of 3.5. And then I was one of the first people in my friend group to be interested in switching over to fourth edition. Okay. Um, one of my friends was like, I am not doing fourth edition. I don't like what, what I'm seeing with it. And I had tried to introduce my, my wife to D and D with 3.5 and it just didn't, stick at all like I, I didn't i don't think we even got through a single session she was like this is dumb this is lame i'm not playing it and then on 
the night of fourth edition's release, um, I was going to go in and pick up the core rule books and my son had just been born and my wife came with me to the store and they were going to be running, um, D and D for like, they had a, they had some dungeon masters there. Sure. You could show up and there was pre-made characters and nobody else was there except for a dungeon master. This was late into the evening. Like they had been going all day Mm -hmm. and this guy had been running it all day. And by the time I showed up, nobody else was playing. And so I sat down and I was like, you know what? I guess my my wife was just going to watch. And I was like, I guess I'll just play four characters to try this out. And my wife was like, well, I'll go ahead and sit down and I'll, I'll play one of the characters. And she picked up an Aladrin wizard and she instantly was hooked to like being able to see like the actual like mechanics of combat and stuff like that. Right. Really got her. Um, and when she got to use, when I had raced the entire rest of it, cause I was running the three other characters when I raced the entire party forward to fight some monsters. And then she thunder waved everybody in the room, including the party. Nice. She was like, this is amazing. Sign me up. So, yeah. And so we played fourth edition the entire run of fourth edition. And then when fifth edition came out, everybody was really liking fifth edition. And I, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and it, at that point, most people had sort of abandoned fourth edition. So I actually ended up starting to sell off all of my books um, and I ended up only keeping like, I think the core books and like a couple others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's only recently that I've started buying them again because now my kids are old enough. Like my son is 12 years old now. He's about to be 13. And, um, we started playing again and loving what fourth edition had going for it. So, Excellent. um, so I've just been recollecting the books now. I've enjoyed the pictures of your collection as you get more books and you post the images of the bookcase. It's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. What was yeah, it? Yeah, I'm after the shift. Um, what was it about the fourth edition that not only you, but it sounds like your family really embraced and dug into? I think it's the, the tactical nature of it. As I've been, I've been playing fifth edition now for quite a while and combat just isn't as exciting for me. It doesn't like when you move into combat, it's, it's a lot of, okay, the wizard's going to start throwing some magic missiles and the fighter is going to roll to hit and inevitably miss. And then that's the end of their turn and they get nothing else to do. And I understand there's all kinds of stuff you can do to make combat more interesting, but um, fourth edition just has a lot more, dynamic combat and as a result fourth edition has just as much non-combat rules as fifth edition it's just like everybody focuses on the combat for fourth edition but you can do just as much role-playing with fourth as fifth so um getting to actually like sit down and have really cool these really cool fights where there's explosions of starfall and the fighters like knocking the enemy back and moving them around and everything like that is, is really cool. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the downsides of that dynamic combat was the, the time investment that even, yeah. and 
just as a path well worn, that even a small skirmish could turn into an hour long combat because of the decisions that yeah. needed to be made and the power levels going back and forth. And there were ways to mitigate that. But I think if you had a session of time that's four hours and you have a combat that lasts an hour and a half, that just eats into other things that you can do. So you really have to be yeah. thoughtful of, well, if we want to do exploration and role-playing, how can we manage combat if there's just some bandits we run into and that takes 90 minutes? Um, yeah. And that was how I started writing my blog about combat time and what to do about it. And it was really a mm -hmm. high time for a lot of people to jump in and offer ideas and start their own uh, websites and with advice. And, uh, you know, I think you were one of the folks that was doing that yourself. And now with fifth edition, yeah. it's sort of the other way. It's almost like combat gets in the way of all the role playing in some in, yeah. in some ways. It's like, oh, well, I guess we got to fight sooner or later, but let's get back to the story. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And with. With fourth edition, like I will not do random encounters. Random encounters just don't happen because you end up with this big slog. Whereas um, one thing I loved about fifth edition is that because everything, the mechanics were so straight, like they were so front and center, it was very easy to see how all the gears were turning. And so all the combats are always dynamic. I always make sure to put stuff in there that's like moving parts. Um, bad guys don't ever just attack. They also like push or pull or bolster people, stuff like that. So it, it just always, you make sure that the combats, because you're not doing random combats, you make sure that they're much more dynamic and interesting the whole time. Well, now, as we were going back and forth talking about some of the topics to hone in on, that was one of the things you brought mm -hmm. up about fourth edition is that you like that the math is forward facing compared to yeah. fifth edition. And can you expand on that a bit of what it's like to run yeah. both, both systems? So the I mean, at this point, I can run fifth edition and third edition and any of the D20 versions. Um, generally without a rule book. If you give me a D20, I can roll, I can run multiple sessions. I don't need stat blocks for monsters or anything like that. It's, um, it's all, you know, because the, the, the math is simple enough. But with fourth edition, um, it was kind of like looking at flipping open the, the hood of your car and watching all the gears running. Because the 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 numbers are all very like the numbers are all there on the page in front of you. You're not you're never guessing like oh you know what should be the the die for the damage for this particular thing. Um, it all it's all just kind of you know there for you to to use. And so I found that I can reflavor things a lot better with fourth edition than fifth edition. Um, for example, um, the other day in our game, my wife wanted to go look for some, uh, like some poultices t for healing before they left to go off to this cave to go fight. And she was like, can I, you know, find a merchant that has a poultice? And we, you know, we did a whole little scene of, of role playing and stuff. And she walked away and I told her what the poultice did 
what I didn't tell her was that it was just a potion of healing. Mechanically, it's a potion of healing, but because everything can be really stripped down for its parts, mm-hmm. um, it makes it so that you can very easily reflavor things. I once made a character that was a blink dog um, for fourth edition that was not a blink dog. It was a an Aladrin sword mage because Aladrin can teleport and sword mages had a lot of teleportation abilities. Mm-hmm. But just by saying it's a blink dog, whereas I think with fifth edition, everything is so the flavor is so ingrained in the mechanics. It makes it a little bit like you could say, Oh, I've got this character. who's a blink dog, but it just, the mechanics aren't, aren't so, so easy to separate from the, the flavor. And just the encounter budget you had for fourth edition, where the, the math was sort of there. It's like, okay, if you have a party of this level and you, if you have your um, monsters and traps that equal this XP, that's pretty standard encounter. Or if you want to make it more difficult, bump the XP up a little bit. And it was all right there. Like it wasn't yeah. like, yeah, like alchemy that. where in fifth edition, I it's years later and I still don't understand the challenge rating and how that all works. And it's, there's fractions, which I don't, don't do fractions. <laughs> just not necessary. Um, it's like to echo your point. I think it is more challenging. Yeah, and um, I'm with this game. I'm running. I'm running a game that's got um, only three players in it, and it's very, very easy for me to take these pre-written encounters for the adventure I'm running and remove monsters from it because I have fewer players. Because uh, the number of players you have have a certain budget based on level for the amount of XP that those monsters are going to give out, and so you just adjust down. Oh, this encounter is supposed to be have this amount of XP. Well, if I remove this amount of XP so it's closer to the party level with the number of players, then I remove have to remove these specific monsters from it. And also, I've found that fourth edition is a lot deadlier than I remember. And I remember everybody being these like unstoppable god beings, but uh, the players are regularly getting knocked out of combat and on the brink of death. So it's been a it's been really interesting to see because I remember everybody saying, oh, you can't kill a character in fourth edition, but I've, <laughs> I've come to a lot. <laughs> like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if I, I mean, recall, it's been years since I've played fourth edition. And one of the enjoyable things about, you know, seeing your tweets and is thinking about all those years that I played that and all the different games that we had and, and fun campaigns and you talked about this dynamic combat where it felt like combat, there were swings to it. It was, you know, maybe the, the party sort of gets a leg up and then that triggers something in the adversaries and then they actually get the advantage and it would sort of swing back and forth. And I don't know if that yeah, happens with, as much in fifth edition in my mind. With uh, the bloodied condition. Yes. Um, yes. A, a character that half the points is bloodied and a lot of characters will get some boost when they're bloodied. And so you'll end up with the heroes doing really, really well. And then suddenly the monsters are bloodied and then the monsters get like triggered attacks that happen and they end up hitting the players really bad. The players get knocked down to only being like two hit points left. And then the players turn around and use their healing surges and suddenly they're surging back into to combat 
and able to to take down the enemy like at the last minute after it looked like they were, you know, it's much more cinematic. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one thing I really like about it. Um, in the most recent encounter they were in, um, I had a bunch of fire element elementals running around the room, and instead of leaving little fire markers, it said that they were supposed to like leave a fire marker from the point at which they started moving. And then once they stopped moving, place a fire marker next to them. And, in, and then if a player moved through that spot, you roll a D six and they take that much fire damage. Whereas instead I just took just a fistful of red D sixes and, and used those as the fire markers, but I would roll them before placing them. And the players could see like how, basically how intense the heat was. Okay. And it was like, if you move through here, that you're going to take five damage. If you move through there, it's only one. So then that sort of required them to figure out mechanically, okay, where am I going to move in this scene to, to be able to get the best advantage and not light myself on fire? It's much more tangible. And I think it was like right around when Dwarven Forge came out with all their terrain pieces and the group that I played with got into that and they collected different sets and then they had pieces from aquariums and railroad terrain. And we were putting yeah. all that together and making these really elaborate set pieces just for like any sort of combat. You had all these interesting things you could look at and do, and it became the centerpiece of the game for better or for worse, where, you know, maybe that takes away from, meeting interesting characters or exploration. You could do both, but it did tilt the scales into, wow, this combat stuff's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, like, I had a, a fighter back in the day who was just a straight human fighter, but all of his powers were all centered around moving the enemy. So he had an at-will power that um, if he had his shield equipped, he could push the enemy one square and then step into their space. And then his other at-will power was that if he he would attack the enemy and then move into an adjacent space, and then the enemy had to move into the spot that he was. So you're sort of pushing and pulling the enemy around the battlefield, which is way more than you're going to see from any like fighter in 5th edition. And that was... Because those were his two at-will powers, that was every single action. He was pushing or pulling the enemy around the battlefield. And then he had an encounter power, or maybe it was a daily, where if he backed the enemy up against a wall so they couldn't move any further back, then he could stab them over the top of his shield. So it was like he was moving the enemy into the, like just the perfect spot where he could finally then like slam them against the wall and then just start hacking into them. And it was it was it was really, really cool. And I like also that with most daily powers um, in fourth edition that you uh, you would even deal damage on a miss, which is something that a lot of spellcasters get. Right. Um, in edition. But fighters got that, too. Um, Rangers and rogues got that. Um, and it, it was funny because when when fifth edition came out, there was it they had the they had the rule where you can use part of your movement and then attack and then move through it, move the rest of the way. But that was specifically a special ability that Rangers got with an at will power. 
And it was like, oh, this is amazing that your ranger can move half their speed attack and then move half again. And then it was in fifth edition. It was like, oh, yeah, everybody gets to do that. Right. So, yeah. Now, and it was so rewarding trying to set up those moments where you could capitalize on whatever the skills, whatever the powers your character had. So I would play, I played mm-hmm. a rogue and I just didn't want to do the whole dagger rogue so i took this feat where i could use a mace because in my mind i was like oh i get to roll a d8 that's better when i would have somebody um, in my group that's like no no take the dagger they do way more damage and all this stuff but i remember there was a a minor action tumble which you could shift three spaces without taking an attack so i constantly be setting that up to set up flanking so i get sneak attack damage but i always got to describe it as like doing these cool moves on the battlefield and setting up attacks. And I, I just, I, I miss that tactile feeling of shuffling through different power cards, which I put in sleeves. <laughs> they were color coded, yeah, yeah. color coded to power. So I was like, all right, which, which dailies or encounters do I have left? And yeah, in fifth edition, which I've played a lot over the years, it's enjoyable and I've liked it. Nothing replicates in fifth edition that I found. Nothing replicates that type of engagement with with combat. Where yeah. you know, even spells, it's it's just you got to keep track of stuff. And if you're more of a martial class, it's like that you don't have too many options. It's like, well, I just I rolled a hit, and did I hit? Great. And people say well, you, can do that. you can do the battle master fighter. It was like, okay, well, that's one subclass right. of one class. So, yeah. And, I, you know, it's and we were talking before, it's like not trying to hate on fifth edition or try to get people all riled up about which edition's better. It's just fourth edition still exists. And I think it's still out there to be played. And mm-hmm. I get the sense that people are re- like you are rediscovering that a little bit, that mm-hmm. this is still a game yeah, that has I, life. I had somebody today. They were like, well, I'm about to start a fourth edition campaign. Do I need the the power books? There was martial power and arcane power and all that. And so we were talking about that. But he was like, yeah, I'm starting a campaign. I was like, great. That's It's really cool to see people. After all these years, it sort of felt like an abandoned edition. I would hear about people playing second edition and first edition. Right. But nobody playing fourth edition. That's kind of cool to see it coming back. And in fact, my fifth edition group that I'm in every other uh, Tuesday they were, they were asking me if I would be willing to uh, be the dungeon master and run fourth edition for them instead. So this fifth edition group, we're all looking at going back to fourth edition, which would be cool. And I remember that the character builder, the online character builder, was quite essential in doing all the math and getting all the powers and it would update your power cards and all that. My understanding is that doesn't exist anymore, Correct. It doesn't. There's apparently some way to access it. What one you have to have a PC, which I've got Macs, so um, that doesn't work for me. But also, like, you have to like do some sort of like backdoor to get into it and stuff like that. So no, it doesn't really exist. Uh, so what we've done is um, I just made the characters by hand, and as long as you're as long as you're starting at first level, not trying to make a thirtieth level. A 30th level characters. The math doesn't get away from you. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, for all the powers, I just took screenshots of 
the powers and then stuck those into a, a Google Doc and then printed that off. Okay. So um, I, I'd like to actually get actual character, like character cards made. Um, but, you know, it depends on having the time to, to get those constructed. Because my kids, they don't have the, the patience to sit down and make the character cards up and stuff. Well, and that's, I, I think, one of the things about fourth edition that got it got cumbersome with trying to print mm-hmm. things out. And then when you level it up, it's like, oh, I got to reprint out all my all my powers and yeah. it's reprinted out. Then you have to cut all the different powers out and put them in the sleeves and you have to repeat that every few sessions. Yeah, I, it was really bad. I actually ran a, a campaign where we were leveling up every single session. Oh, my. And we, we ended that at level 10. We were like, okay, guys, we got to slow down. <laughs> well, and I kind of feel like fourth edition, it that late Paragon tier is sort of the sweet spot where the players have a lot of options, but it's not too many options. And I don't think I ever played in the epic tier in fourth edition because it got to be too unwieldy. Yeah, I think I may have done one one shot of it. And it was bonkers. But it would be great if they if there was an easy way to support that, where you know you could still build a character. And I know they uh, and mm. I remember documenting that in the in the moment. They were trying to come up with a digital encounter builder and a set of DM tools and player mm. tools, and it fizzled for a variety of reasons. I think even with fifth edition, that would be beneficial. They it just doesn't exist yet. It, there's Roll20 and some other online options, but for whatever reason, there isn't an official, hey, here's a virtual tabletop. Have at it. Yeah, and I mean, they've they've pared down at, at WOTC, like how many people they have working on anything. So um, that's, that's the only thing I can assume is just, you know, especially because there's so many different virtual tabletops out there to make a new one that's specifically for D&D might not get them the traction that they would they would want because a bunch of people are going to be like, well, I already know Roll20. I already know Fantasy Grounds. I'm not going to switch over to this thing. But if it was all built in and integrated, maybe you could it could be an easier sell. So as you've been, you know, playing fourth edition more often, what what have been some of the surprising things to you? You kind of mentioned that it's a little bit more deadly than you assumed. What are some other things that stand yeah. out from running sessions again? Um, I had actually completely forgotten about the four different defenses. Okay. So in fifth edition, you've got your AC and then you've got saving throws and that's, you know, you've got your, you know, your saving throws for all your attributes. But with, uh, fourth edition, you have your, uh, reflex fortitude and will. So, um, I had pointed this out on Twitter that in, a somewhat recent episode of Critical Role, there was some big giant iron golem they were fighting. And they were hitting like, they were getting like 24 and they kept being told they were missing. Because it was this giant hard iron golem you couldn't get through through its armor. And I said, in 4th edition, what you would have done is switched over your attacks to no longer be attacking their armor class. You would have tried attacking their will because monsters would have, you know, an armor class of 24, but then like a will of 14. 
So that's where you're going to be able to hit them. So you can you can sort of change up your tactics when you realize you aren't getting through a monster's attacks, and you can go, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and start attacking their their fortitude. And even like a fighter can has some powers that attack a person's fortitude instead of their AC. Um, so the, the the four different defenses I forgot about and are pretty cool because you can you can do a lot of cool stuff with that. Um, everybody keeps asking me, how do you do skill challenges in 5th edition? How can you adapt those over? And I don't, and as I've been looking at the skill challenges, I'm not really sure what how to answer that question, because I could run a 5th edition skill challenge simply by looking at a 4th edition skill challenge and just doing it. Because a skill challenge is an extended skill check for people who don't know what it is, where basically you have to get a certain number of successes before you get a certain number of failures. So it works. It's kind of like a combat. Each person gets, each turn gets to do something in the skill challenge. Um, and you sort of have to, you describe what you're going to do. And then you choose a skill based on what you're saying you're going to do. And some skills are easier to pass and some are more difficult. Um, so like we had a, a chase and athletics and, um, acrobatics were pretty easy. Um, streetwise was, was hard, um, and then perception didn't give you a success or a failure, but if you succeeded on the check, then you got a bonus to one of your allies because you were like noticing, like how to get through the the city and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, skill challenges are are you can run those with fifth edition without any adaptation other than if the if a certain skill has a different name than another, you know. Yeah, and and I recall skill challenges getting a bad rap from a lot of people because it was so mechanical that there was, again, the mass forward facing. It's like, okay, you need this many successes before failures. And I Mm. I think some folks just didn't like that. They thought it was kind of clunky and turned something that should have been more role-playing or exploration into just a series of roles. All right, we're going to go around the table and see who, su- who succeeds, who fails. And in some ways, and in, in, in looking back at it, I just feel like players in fourth edition use so much more skills in mm-hmm. uh, from their character sheet in fourth edition than they ever use and there's fewer- in fifth edition. And I, I, I did this a few years ago, and I, I'd have to find a thread. Um, but I looked through some of the big hardcover adventure books in fifth edition of like, okay, what checks do they ask for? And I think somebody else did this too. And it's like mostly your, you know, perception checks. There's some arcana checks thrown in, but most of the other skills are ignored completely. Like you don't even really use them. And in fourth edition, it's almost like you had to, you had to, and we had this running joke with the dwarf in our, in our group. He's like, well, can I do Dungeoneering? I'm like, well, you're in the middle of a forest right now, so probably not. <laughs> but that was always the joke. It's like, what am I going to use Dungeoneering for? But it forced people to kind of think, okay, here are the talents I have. How can I use them in this situation? And I felt like as a, yeah, as a, being the... as a DM, you could kind of bring that out of people if you wanted to do more of a story, like role play, okay, tell me what you're doing. It didn't have to just be this, mm-hmm. all right, now you roll, now you roll, now you roll. Yeah. In the recent uh, skill challenge, my wife has a really great arcana because she's a sorcerer. And so they were chasing after this guy. And she said, 
well, can I use Arcana to like basically do a little cantrip to try to trip him up? Mm-hmm. And because there, you know, there there are some utility powers that allow you to to do cantrippy type things. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, it's not on the list of skills you can use, but I basically mentally set the difficulty at 20. So it's like, you know what? If she can beat a 20, then yeah, she can use her arcana. And she ended up doing it successfully each time Nice to, to gain some successes. So, um, you know, despite the fact that the skill challenges list, then these are the skills you can use to succeed. Um, you know, if a player can come up with a good reason why they can use another one, then that's great. And I really like the skill challenges that don't, that give you, um, give or take different things from you that aren't a, ba- a success or a failure. So, um, I believe the, the athletics check on that, that one, if you fail it, then you also lose a healing surge. Um, so basically it weakens you as you're going along. Right. And, and basically all the fourth edition feels a lot more, um, sort of like a war attrition um, as you steadily run out of daily powers and your healing surges and you get to the point where you're like, we cannot go any further. And you sort of have to abandon your quest for a while. Right. Yeah. The, the skill part was, was interesting. And there's still, you mentioned this earlier, there's still plenty of room to do role playing. And I, I think for whatever reason, people just felt, well, you can't do that in fourth edition. And what's been your experience just yeah. running running the games lately? Um, yeah, there, there's just there's basically just as much role play. The one of the um, things is with the adventure that I'm running. I'm running um, Chris Sims' uh, Season of Serpents, which was one of the D and D encounters. And the first, the players have gotten worn down because they start off with the first um, encounter where they're going and rescuing a guy from a cave, they bring him back to town and then there's uh, a, a skill challenge and two encounters and all, all that's in the same day. Mm-hmm. So the players are exhausted by the end of that. Um, but before they even left for the first adventure, um, they were getting right into the kids were getting right into role playing and talking to the characters and finding out info and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's no shortage of role play. And, um, and I think that, um, the Mentir Veil setting for fourth edition is so much more interesting and dynamic. Um, How so? that, I mean, for, or, uh, Forgotten Realms requires so much knowledge of the setting and all the cities are huge, like trying me trying to know what's in Neverwinter and Baldur's Gate and um, my mind's going a Waterdeep mm-hmm. is just there's so much stuff going on into the the politics of each of the towns and stuff like that. Whereas the Nentir Vale is this tiny little corner of the world um, that. It just has a, a few small towns. It really makes it so that you feel the players feel like they are the heroes. There aren't a bunch of other adventuring parties. Forgotten Realms feels like there's a bunch of other adventuring parties wandering around out there. Right. Um, 
just because of how big and expansive it is and because everybody's playing in it. So players will constantly talk about, oh, our group headed through Waterdeep. And so you sort of mentally go, oh, well, then their group has recently been in Waterdeep and it's all part of the same shared universe. Whereas then Into Your Veil is so small and intimate that when your players show up in town, they feel like they're the heroes that the, that the town needs because there's nobody else around to stop the encroaching darkness. They've really gone back with fifth edition. It seems like every one of the major adventures ties into this lore that's been around for 20 to 30 years. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Hey, if you go back to three and second edition and first edition, it's like, you can see the iterations of all these locations and all the different factions. And here's this history. And, it's intimidating to run because you feel like you have to know a lot. And as a player, it can maybe feel a little bit like it's easy to get lost in all that. Yeah. Whereas with um, fourth edition, then in tier veil did not exist before um, the four fourth edition. And even the gods, like they grab a few gods from the forgotten realms and from Greyhawk, and then they make up a few. But in the end, there's a total of, like, I think, at most 10 good gods. And they're all pretty clear on what exactly their their job is. Mm-hmm. And the evil gods, I remember, like, being terrified by the evil gods in the Nantir Vale. Like, I, like the, some of the gods from Forgotten Realms, like, I, I only know of maybe two of the Forgotten Realms gods. But you mentioned Torog in uh, fourth edition, who is this giant god who is his entire body is covered in terrible wounds and he's bound in chains and he drags himself through the Underdark. Like, that's terrifying. Right. And stuff like that. It's just, it's a lot more uh, dynamic. And, uh, and, and the Nentir Vale has, um, basically almost all the environments except desert. Like you can go off to the swamps, you can go off to the mountains, there's forests, there's lakes, um, there's the open plains, there's all these different, um, places you can go to. And then later on, they did a dark sun setting, which introduced yeah. desert if you wanted to, to get that type of vibe. Yeah, and I, I played a short campaign of that, and then I, I played in a pretty long Eberron campaign hmm. there as well. And Eberron feels perfect for 4th edition. Um, it it matches the superheroic uh, attitude of 4th edition, where the players are all amazing um, kick-ass adventurers. I think with fourth edition and into fifth edition and the span of time over the last decade, whether it's serendipity or whatnot, but with the popularity of streaming, like I don't know if fourth edition works as well with all these online games and streams and people listening to podcasts or watching people playing on Twitch because you don't need that tactile combat or overhead camera of okay here's the battlefield it's all theater of the mind for the most part and that works and that works really well with fifth edition i think that fourth edition would be harder to translate into that mode 
Um, maybe people yeah, are doing and, it, and, and if they are, cool. You don't want to watch a bunch of players trying to figure out what powers they're going to be using. Right. So you'd have to figure out something else if you were going to run a, a stream of of uh, fourth edition. It's fun when you're in the moment and you're eating snacks or having a few drinks and making jokes and people yeah. are sort of, all right, what do I need to do? And the pressure's mounting with those swings in combat. Yeah. But as an audience member, I don't know if it works as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You were talking before, one of the things I really like about 4th edition, and even when I'm playing 5th edition as, as a DM, I'll sort of use it as a trigger as the bloodied condition, which yeah. just seems like it's such a brilliant thing. I don't know why they did away with it, but it really opens up a design space for having some interesting things happen. Yeah. Um, like you've got Dragonborn, they have the encounter power of, of being able to breathe whatever they breathe, and then when they're bloodied, that resets and they get to use it again. Um, the the shifter, if you're like a the long, I think it's called long tooth, or the fast shifter, then you get um, you get to um, like increase your speed and your reflex save. Um, so you got and there's all kinds of different things that can trigger on bloodied. And not only that, simply telling a player that character is bloodied tells the player that where the conditions are mm -hmm. in the fight. Okay. Okay. We know they're bloodied. So we know that we've gotten them about down to halfway. Um, my last attack was a, was a 3d six attack and I rolled really well. So I don't know how bloodied the person is. <laughs> I rolled so well, maybe the person was almost that bloodied. So, you know, then you're sort of calculating where it is you need to um, figure out where you're, how tough you need to keep going after the enemy. Um, and, you know, if you got the whole battlefield littered with, with bloodied enemies, then you're like, okay, we're doing pretty well. How's our hit points? Are Okay, all of our hit points are pretty good. We know that we, you know, we're doing well. And then, of course, you've got minions that are right. always have hit points. And those are fantastic, especially for a controller that's able to, you know, do blast area attacks and stuff where you're just mowing through armies of, of goblins or kobolds. Right. And then the, the, the I've actually ran a couple of games where it was against a bunch of giants and the giants had minions. And so the, these giant minions <laughs> had single hit points. Just drop it. But it meant that you just, yeah, but you were sort of felt like Thor, like charging in with Mjolnir and you're just like laying waste to like whole armies of giants until you get to the boss. And then he's like the really tough guy that you're trying to take down. It was pretty cool. So with getting all these books, are you mostly collecting them? Or are you rereading some of them? Have, have you found some of the content to be a little surprising in some ways or another? I like how clear all the writing is. I've been going back through and, re and rereading some of these and reading some of them for the first time because I didn't end up getting all the books. And so some of the ones I've been getting recently, I, I never had. And the writing is so clear and straightforward and... Not sure if it's a bigger font size on a white background or what. It just feels a lot easier to read the books. And there's adventure hooks. Like, 
in almost every single paragraph. Um, you just really feel like you're able to to grasp all the content. Um, like the uh, just yesterday, um, I had uh, the Shadowfell box set come in, which is a great set. And I played that. Yeah, and it's I, a lot of fun. I've never gotten that. Yeah, I'd never gotten that one, so it was pretty cool to to get to see finally. Um, and I've always liked the Shadowfell. I had a character who was a servant of the Raven Queen, and then our characters took we took like a month long break, and then we had we leveled up like three levels, and we said we were getting back together a year later. And he had died and gone to the Shadowfell and came back as like a champion of the Shadar Kai and stuff. So I love the Shadowfell. I just never got a chance to actually like really get into it. And it's been really cool to see like all the different story hooks that are in there. Um, I'm tempted to actually kill off my group um, with my wife and kids and have them awaken in the Shadowfell. And then they have to escape the shadow fell. That'd be a good sentence, the clip. It's like, I'm tempted to kill off my group with my wife and kids. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. no, we had a campaign, the shadow fell too. And that book was so rich in terms of here's all this stuff that's going on. You can do with it what you want, but like, here are all these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's called Gloomrot and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so I was expecting it to be mostly a supplement about this city of Gloomrot, but it's it's right near the beginning of the book, but it's really probably only about at most a quarter of the book. There's so much other content in there about everything else that's there in the Shadowfell and stuff like that. And uh, recently watching the new Pixar movie um, Soul, okay, and there's that there's this whole like field with these like sort of wandering faceless shadow beings that are people who have sort of they get stuck on something in life and are obsessed with that i'm like i think i may need to put those in the into the shadow fell nice (laughs) i recall and i saw some folks were writing about this maybe like a couple months ago but i do remember that the dungeon master's guide and then also the the second dungeon master's guide were incredibly useful because it had been a long break for me from running D &D. I played second edition like as a teenager and then took a long break and got back into it in fourth edition. Running a game felt intimidating and I was like, okay, how do I do this? And I bought fourth mm-hmm. edition for dummies. <laughs> One yes. of those books. But like going through the DMG and the DMG two, like you said, it was very clear language and very practical. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, here's how you deal with these situations, here's how you deal with these types of players. And I still th- would imagine those books are helpful for any edition. Yeah, they're they're mostly um, ruleless because, um, like, all the magic items are on the player's handbook, so all that type of stuff isn't in there. There's like traps and poisons and things like that. Um, the disease the disease rules, by the way, were so much better in fourth edition than they have been in any other edition because you have these like levels of it yeah so like as you get worse like you end up going up the disease track which causes certain conditions to you and then as you heal it gets better and it's not a simple matter of like cure wounds like you actually have to um to do stuff to like lessen the diseases um but the reason why dmg2 is so much 
better than any other DMG that's ever been out there is because it was written by Robin D. Laws. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but um, he wrote this book back in the day that's Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering. And it was put out by Steve Jackson Games, I believe. And that's the first book I read that like sort of set me on my path to being a, a good DM. Um, and a lot of the material in Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering is in DMG2. And it just has really practical advice for running a table and thinking on the fly and stuff like that. Yeah. No, it's 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 a great book. And the other one I would recommend if, if folks are looking for some fourth edition supplements, the I think it's called the Player's Strategy Guide. I think, yeah. I, I remember going through a bookstore and seeing that. I was like, oh, this is interesting. What's in here? And I was like, oh, this tells you how to actually play this game well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, and I feel like that that content needs to be out there. It's because I think you can benefit for again any edition you're playing or any game you're playing. Yeah, that one was really good because it's sort of it's not how to min max, but it's how to like prioritize and how to be a good efficient player, um, making sure that you're playing the strengths of your character as well as your own strengths as a player. Um, and then there was another one, it's called like, I think it's called Into the Unknown. It's like a, a guide for dungeoneering or something like that. And that one's like strategy for like non-combat situations, for like diving into dungeons. And like, it's sort of sort of a secondary supplement to that. That's pretty good. Yeah, I kind of miss it. I kind of miss like seeing you play and seeing some other people talking about it. And I don't know if it's just passage of time, people are getting nostalgic, or if it's 5th mm -hmm. edition maybe running its course and people getting a little antsy for something different. Uh, I, I do miss the way 4th edition felt. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, it might also be being in lockdown for the last 12 months and wanting to be around people and like actually touch things and... Um, see combat um getting to move your miniatures around the table yeah exactly oh i had to break up a fight between players when somebody else touched someone's mini and it got dicey i was like hey now let's all take a break <laughs> well i'm i'm thinking about putting together in roll 20 a basically a, a dungeon with pre-made characters and then if somebody's like i want i want to play some fourth edition then it's like ready to go the dungeon is all set up the the players uh, characters are all set up ready to go and i can just run that as like a little one shot anytime people are interested one thing i've always said is that i think that fourth edition would have been seen completely differently if it had been called something like dnd tactics or something like if they hadn't called it fourth edition dnd saying like this is the next iteration of the game because it was so different, I think, I think if you had called it like D and D Tactics and then done something more like Pathfinder for standard D and D, like, I think Fourth Edition would have been sort of seen as revolutionary. It definitely got me back into the hobby because I I had left it for fifteen twenty years while doing like college grad school and only got back into it when I started listening to some of the fourth edition like the official podcast um mm. which 
kind of before podcasts were a thing, <laughs> you have to like go hunt and find them. Uh, but yeah, it was yeah. it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people playing that. So it sort of started writing my site, and um, you know, it's it's something that I I hope finds its footing rather than being just yeah. this forgotten edition that no one talks about or tries to sweep under the rug. Yeah, and a bunch of the books are uh, print-on-demand on DMs Guild. Okay. So you can so you can get physical copies. Well, how can people like find out the stuff that you're working on? Because I know you got your, your site again. That's, that's DiceMonkey.net. Like, what are some of the stuff you're putting out? Um, yeah, so I've got DiceMonkey.net. I, I'm trying to get a post every once a week at least um, okay. because I've got... Um, I've got a Patreon, so I've, I've promised the patrons that, so that that kind of holds me to Where account. can folks find the uh, Patreon? Uh, that should be uh, patreon.com slash DiceMonkey, um, and I've also got a link right on the front page of, of DiceMonkey itself. Um, and uh, the way I've been talking about getting back into 4th edition, um, I'm, I've been running... Uh, a Lord of the Rings campaign, and we switched over from playing the One Ring to Adventures in Middle Earth, which is the fifth edition adaptation of it. So I have a, a topic all about trying to switch game systems in the middle of the campaign. Um, so that's the type of thing that I, I talk about. Um, and then I also uh, try to get out news whenever I see it pop up, if I've got time, like when I'm at, at work, to uh, sit down and and do a quick little news post. Um so I try to, you know, keep everybody up to date on that. Um, and then um, I've, I've got another site that doesn't get updated too regularly unless I sort of get manic and decide to <laughs> write a bunch of stuff for it. That's uh, marvelplotpoints.com, where we make content for the Marvel heroic role-playing game. You've been putting out um, those heroes is, for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's... I had actually started that before the game actually officially came out. I'd gotten a review copy early and then was like, you know what? I'm going to be the site that's the fan site for this. And so we've been making new characters for it. And then two summers ago when I was in Korea, I did um, about six months of the entire MCU. So I've got heroes and villains from the MCU. So you could run a whole campaign with that. Um, and then... Then the, and then the the website will you know lie fallow for a year or two <laughs> before we decide to make more stuff for it. So um, yeah, and then I've, of course I've got um, Twitter as well, which is I'm at Mark Meredith there. Okay, excellent. So yeah, everyone uh, check out Dice Monkey, follow you on Twitter, and um, don't don't sleep on fourth edition. Everyone should uh, give it another, give it another try. I know I certainly want to at some point. Yeah. I'll have to run something for you. That'd be fun. I, I would love to hear the people who are listening. I, I'd love to hear your fourth edition stories. Cause it seems yeah. like everyone has them about just mm -hmm. sort of ridiculous combat and these different moves people tried to pull off and, just that type of cinematic dynamic experience. Um, yeah. And even, you know, sometimes with skill challenges too, could be like that. So it's. Yeah. Um, Quinn Murphy, um, he was kind of the God King of skill challenges back in the day. Um, he, a lot of his 
um, blog, which was <coughs> um, at will. Um, he had all kinds of skill challenges and like tweaks for how skill challenges should work and stuff. It was pretty cool. Yeah, even just saying at will, it's like you know at will encounter daily. Yeah. Like move action, minor action. I just I sort of missed that economy. It just was very. It sort of made sense. Yeah. Even understanding um, the roles of all the characters, because it was like controller, leader, um, striker, and defender. And so for any group, you could say, oh, we've got, you know, we've got two defenders, so don't make a defender. And that meant that would like basically say, here's four classes you shouldn't be playing. Or we really need a, we really need a leader. Um, so that, and, you know, not only the clerics were healing, but you also had you had a martial um, uh, leader as well, the uh, the warlord who would boost allies and give them healing and stuff like that. I think somebody, when we were talking about this uh, topic online, somebody just wrote like warlord in all capital letters. <laughs> they were like really excited yes. about warlord. <laughs> yeah, warlords are amazing. I, in fact, there was a there was one campaign where I invited some stranger over to play, and he showed up with a level one warlord that would take him like twenty minutes to to take his turn because he had min-maxed it and figured out this perfect uh-huh. like mechanical combination that made him like be able to boost everybody like right. it was... I did get the point if, if you are playing fourth edition one of the things that I, I did with folks is I had an egg timer <laughs> or a, like yeah, a sand yeah. timer it's like alright you got two minutes go and yeah. and that goes quick you gotta be mm-hmm. ready to go <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you very much for your time. This was a blast talking about fourth edition, and uh, yeah, thanks for it, it'd be fun to do it again sometime. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks.